If you've got a copy of God's Word, please open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to provide a whole lot more uh, supporting scripture for what we're talking about today, which is our seventh of eight weeks in our core commitment series, and that is on our giving. Uh, on our giving. Uh, now, if you're a guest of ours today, I have to say this. You're thinking, great, the one time I come, they're talking about giving, right? To be honest, it really is an amazing thing because I can count on one hand how many times I've preached on giving. This many times. This time. I think that giving is always an application of our message. We can always arrive at faithfulness in our stewardship wherever we are in the text of Scripture, but I rarely ever do what we're doing today. And when I mean rarely, I mean first time in, I guess, six years. And so, uh, you know, there's a reason we're doing this today, and that's because this is the first time that I've ever done a series called Core Commitments. And I think that this, our giving, is a core commitment. Being a follower of Jesus is more than these eight things that we're going to talk about in this series. But as I've said already, it certainly isn't less. And you may be looking at giving and thinking, I mean, giving tithes and offerings, is that really a core commitment? Or is this just a pastor trying to make sure that the church meets budget towards the end of the year? Listen, I hear that and I receive that, but I'm going to suggest to you something today. There are not many godly characteristics that you can put on that would align your heart with God's more than a giving spirit. I mean, really, maybe on one hand, the real, the real power five, but God's generosity has to fall on that list. And so when we're talking about being givers, being generous givers, I'm going to suggest to you that it is absolutely a core commitment. The very essence of the gospel hinges on God's love being manifested in the form of cheerful and generous giving. The verse that we all memorize, God so loved the world that he gave. I'd say that's a core commitment, a giving spirit. We find in scripture a massive emphasis on the call to possess the same giving spirit as our God. And you may be thinking, I don't see a lot of verses on, on, on giving tithes and offerings in scripture. I don't, I don't see that a lot. Show it to me. Well, Listen, there's a book called God and Money by Gregory Bomer and John Cortinez. It says this, there are 500 verses on prayer, about the same 500 or so on faith. Those are two pretty big ones, right? There are over 2,000 on money and possessions. That seems pretty valuable, pun intended, I guess. We see a huge emphasis on this in God's Word. Now, many of the verses that I just mentioned, the 2,000 and some others, actually more like 2,300, many of these verses are in parts of the Bible that maybe you don't uh, frequent. Maybe you find them harder to read. A lot of them are in the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, as well as in the prophets, especially the minor prophets. But even much more than you think are found in the New Testament. In fact, about 40% of Jesus' parables pertain to money and possessions. Not just Jesus, but the apostles instructed it to the early church. The early church then was committed to it. They shared their resources for the benefit of the body. And when they weren't doing that, the apostles called them out on it. Even Jesus, the head of the body, saw your relationship with your finances as a big enough deal to give it the label of the other master. Remember? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and Money. Your giving habits tell you a great deal about that on which you depend. And the reason I say that word depend is because giving is first a heart matter before it is a matter of your finances. The discipline of giving, like all other disciplines of the Christian life, it begins with your heart. It begins in your heart, not in your 
bank account. And so I want you to keep that in mind that what we're talking about today, it has fruit that manifests itself in, yes, giving tithes or offerings or maybe being generous to your coworker or your friend or your neighbor. It has lots of applications out there, but first and foremost, what we're talking about today is adopting a giving spirit that begins here before it begins here. So let's see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the chair rack in front of you, perhaps, or you can look on the screen behind me. It'll be there as well. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. And God's Word says this. The point is this. So the Apostle Paul is unpacking something before this, and he comes to a summary and says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10 says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And finally, verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving unto God. Now, before we can go any further, first thing we have to understand is this. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth belongs to God. Everything. Your name may be on the bank statement, it may be on the deed, but it all belongs to our God. Psalm 24, 11 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwells therein. Job 41, verse 11, when God has really given it to Job and he's putting him in his place, he says this, who has given to me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven is mine, he says. And we do this too, even with our kids. Remind them that what is theirs is really, it's mine. My two oldest, Zion and Shiloh, have a jump rope. They don't know how to jump rope. Instead, they use it as a tug-of-war machine. And so they'll just fight over the jump rope when there's two sides of a jump rope, and they'll just yank it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes they will clothesline their little sister with it and the dog with it. And so when they get out of control, guess what has to happen? I remind them who's really that jump rope is, and I take it and I put it on top of the refrigerator where they can't get it. And Brooke does that too, because we have given it to them, and it's theirs, but whose is it really? It's ours. And sometimes we have to enforce who really is the owner of that thing, and that's true with little kids. Maybe you have teenagers. You do the same when you ground your teenager from the car or the cell phone that you pay for. Are they the owners? Sort of, but no. You're the owner, right? And you remind them of that when it is necessary. The reason I say that is this. Is your money yours? Kind of, but more than an owner, you are a caretaker. You are a manager of your money, not an owner of it. Because of that, our orientation toward money is different from the world around us, which is, they see it as ownership, right? And so the world would see money, and this is very important, the world sees possessions as uh, an instrument of spending and saving and pursuing the American dream. Money is an instrument, but for us, it is not one of spending, saving, and pursuing the American dream. For us, money is, and possessions are instruments of worship and dependence. That's it, okay? Now, can we spend? Can we save? And can we seek to have nice things and enjoy nice things? Absolutely praise God for that. But most importantly, 
Our things, money, possessions, all of it, are to be instruments, just like everything else around you, instruments of glorifying our Father in heaven and communicating to him that we depend on him for everything that we have. Amen? That's the purpose of all things. Now listen, because of that, if there's one big takeaway to be had today, it may be this, that before giving is about financial decisions, it is ultimately about worshipful decisions. Before giving is about financial decisions. It is ultimately about worshipful decisions. The currency of your eternal residence, the kingdom of God, is not the U.S. dollar. It is Godward devotion and dependence, and only one of those will last. Do we depend on him? And just like all facets of life, your finances are an opportunity for you to communicate to God that you depend on Almighty God, not on the Almighty dollar. And so I'm going to leave you with two things to take away today. And there are two questions, questions that we can pursue godly giving. And the first question is this, is my giving worshipful? Is my giving worshipful? We really can see this interwoven in a lot of the passages we're going to look at this morning, but I do think that it begins where we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Is my giving worshipful? Paul is summarizing a long, couple chapter long argument, and he comes to this point in verse 6 and says, the point is this, and he kind of summarizes it, which is nice. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, gather, receive sparingly. And whoever sows, plants, spreads seed bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you didn't pick up on it, it's a gardening metaphor that he's using, and one that would probably be well received in this community. He's using a gardening metaphor, and what he's saying is you plant more seed for a bigger harvest. If you have a garden, you do the same thing. If you just plant one seed, you're going to have a small harvest. If you plant much seed, you will have a large harvest, and Paul is using that as an illustration or an analogy to talk about the discipline of giving, which can I be honest with you? That's weird to me. It's a really weird analogy that he uses because when we give of our finances, it is giving. It's not investing necessarily the way that we would think of investing, right? It is investing. It's just not the sort that we would think in our world. Why I say it's weird is because when you give to your church or to your friend or to a, a homeless shelter or for, to a children's home, you're not giving to a mutual fund, right? You're not giving so that your money will appreciate and you could take it out and then have more. It's not, it's not in that way a, a copy and paste uh, sowing and harvesting. It's not like building hotels in Monopoly where it's like the more money I spend, the more money I make. I love Monopoly a lot and I destroy my siblings at Monopoly every time that we play Monopoly. But listen, the way that we give is not like a mutual fund. It's not like if I spend more to make more. That's not what Paul is saying. But oddly, this is metaphorically the way that Paul encourages their giving. God is going to bless your giving, is what he's saying. Jesus spoke similarly. This isn't just the Apostle Paul. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 38, he says, give, and it will be given to you. He then modifies that and says, this is how it's going to be given to you if you give. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you you. I'm going to mention that verse in just a second, but first, a general principle is absolutely true. God will not instruct us to do something that is not for our ultimate benefit. God will not ever, has never, will never instruct you to do anything that is not for your ultimate benefit. We trust him. Read Proverbs 3, verse 5. We, we lean on him. We, we trust him. But the idea that giving away money yields greater value is a foreign concept to the world. Think about it. 
investing it is one thing, but giving it away and it appreciating is, is a foreign concept to our world. Before I was a pastor, I, I was in the secular workforce and I worked full-time for uh, a cell phone company called Sprint, which you may know. And I worked in a, in a business sales inside uh, office and uh, we had lots of clients, 400 business clients. And my best friend that I worked with was a guy named uh, Milijub Damjanovic. He was an American, if you're just guessing. Uh, he was a Serbian guy, and he was the funniest dude, man. I loved spending time with Mila, is what I called him. And he would always ask me questions about the church. He knew I was in seminary, and so he'd say, like, like what's up with, he asked me one time, what's up with giving? Like, you just give your money to the church? Like, do you, do you trust that? Why do you give your money away? And, he, and I'm like, well, that God instructs us to give, and so we, we give. Yeah, sure. And I didn't go into the idea. I wasn't bragging about that. I was just like, yeah, of course we give. And he's just foreign concept. He's like, you give your money away. Like, yeah. He loved his money. And uh, he said, well, how much do you give? He doesn't know the taboo. Like, it, well, it doesn't just come up to you. And I didn't care. I was like, well, and I told him, uh, you know, based on what I was making, uh, it, it was a few thousand dollars. I'm not sure over the year span. And he, I mean, it rocked him back. He could not believe that I would give away enough to go on a vacation to Mexico. He couldn't believe that. And so it was a teaching opportunity for me to say, well, this is why. But you know what he called me? Crazy. He called me crazy because I was giving away the money that I was working for. But you see, to the world, it is foolishness what we do with our money. It's foolishness because we do not have the same worldview as the world does that sees giving away money as a waste, flushing it down the toilet. But we see it as investing in something far greater than the world that we live in. It's a foreign concept of appreciation, not of monetary value, but of eternal value. What Jesus is saying in that verse in Luke 6, 38, you can see it again above. Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over into your lap. The measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What Jesus is saying there is that God gives to those who give generously. You see that. God gives to those who give generously. And notice the description there. I love the description there because I think of the opposite thing in our world is a bag of potato chips. You know what I'm talking about? Lay's potato chips where you open it. If you were to crush all those potato chips down, if the bag is this high, it would go to about this high, right? It's like 60% air in there or more, right? It's kind of annoying the way that they just rob us like that. But that's what I think about. But this is not the way that, that Jesus is talking. He's saying, no, no, no. It's not just fluff. It's not just air. No, it's pressed down. It's shaken. It's filled up to the brim. It's more like how you guys fill the trash bag so you don't have to be the one to take it out. Right? I can, I can get more down in there. The point is this. God gives to the faithful giver. God gives much to a faithful giver. Now listen, this is very important. When I say God gives much, I'm not saying that God will pack your wallet. He may. I'm saying that he will continue to meet your needs while also building your dependence and love for him. What is the true standard of fullness? What really gives us greater security? That's what God needs to fill us with. Not the dollar, but fill us with himself and sustain us and meet our needs, but build our dependence and our love for him. In other words, you can withhold and keep and have much and yet be absolutely empty and hollow. And you can give and have just enough and be absolutely filled to the brim. Your bank account has an expiration date. When you expire, so does your ownership of it. But the equity that you invest in your relationship with God will never expire. So the question is simple, which is the wiser investment? It doesn't mean that we are adhering to the prosperity gospel 
of health and wealth and prosperity. I mean, look at verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 9 right here. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's able. He can give it all. So that having all sufficiency, your translation may say contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know what that says? It doesn't say that you're going to get everything that you want. It says you're going to have everything that you need. God blesses the cheerful giver. You will have everything that you need in this life. The prosperity gospel, on the other hand, is a con centered around manipulating the giver, not to build God's kingdom, but that of the leader or the individual. And you see it all over the place. Give this much money, $3 million, and we're going to buy a private jet because we've got to take the gospel to India. True story. It happens. And that's not what we're talking about, being biblical, Christ-centered giving. The currency of the kingdom is different. We see some, something similar to this in verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, in other words, he gives seed to sow, he gives bread to, to eat, the, 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 to enjoy. He will supply and multiply, notice that word multiply, your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Don't miss that either. You'll be enriched in every way to result be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving unto God. He'll multiply your seed for sowing, for giving. The intention is that with increased resources, the sower would increase his sowing, and so a snowball of generosity would build. In other words, the goal of giving is not, or is rather that God would bless your giving, that you may give more, not spend more. That we may store up wealth of righteousness, not store up the wealth of cash, cars, and clothes. Now, don't miss this. This is very important. God wants us to enjoy that which he gives us. He wants us to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the harvest. Enjoy the harvest. Just don't do so at the expense of sowing much, of giving much. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 are a wonderful example of what I just said. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul's instructing Timothy to tell this to Christians. He says, as for the rich in this present age, pause, that's you, okay? You may not make six figures, you may not have 1.1 million in the bank, but compared to the rest of the world, these are the rich ones, okay? So when Paul says, as for the rich of the present age, that's us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, he says to Timothy, not to be haughty, not, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoy it. Enjoy the harvest. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus, with the result that says storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. There's that crazy paradox again. Give it away to have much, so that, he says, they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, he's saying, having the money is not living. You give it away to have what is truly living. It's better to walk generously with God, with what you need, than to walk greedily apart from him with everything that money could buy. A good example of that is the guy you read about named Solomon. Solomon had everything. You read about King Solomon, David's son. Solomon's words at the end were contrary to the life that he lived. Solomon threw huge parties. He had huge mansions. He had huge wealth. He could do and say anything that he wanted and go and get it. 
but he learned quickly that the treasures of earth are all, as he said, vanity or meaningless. In fact, the word that's translated vanity or meaningless, Solomon uses it 38 times in that little bitty book. 38 times. The last ones, in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, his last words, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He's been there. He would know. At the end of the day, it's better to walk generously with God, with what you need, than to walk greedily apart from him with everything that money could buy. Is my giving worshipful? That's the target. Is it worshipful? Second, is my giving sacrificial and cheerful? Is my giving sacrificial and cheerful? When you hear the word sacrifice, and, and think about it in terms of the Bible, when you hear the word sacrifice, you probably think of the sacrificial system, which that's kind of where I'm getting at. Uh, in the Old Testament for believers, worship was the sacrificial system, and the sacrificial system was their worship. Now our minds, when we hear the words sacrifice, in this instance, they go to dead animals. <laughs> but it was really about more than dead anim animals. It was about willingness to give something valuable, trusting that God would meet needs. It's called sacrifice, right? It's called sacrifice for a reason. Going without, trusting that God would sustain. The emphasis of the New Testament is generous, sacrificial giving, but in the Old Testament it was tithing and other offerings, free will offerings. But there are three primary tithes in the Old Testament. The tithes, again, three of them. The first one went to the priests. The priests and the Levites. The priests were officers of the, what would they call the theocracy. Uh, the theocracy means that God's the one in charge. Uh, it's not a democracy. It's not a monarchy. It is a theocracy, meaning that we're all here and we serve one, and it is God alone. And so in the theocracy, priests were sort of God's right-hand guys. They were his mouthpieces to the people. The priests were God's representatives to man, but he was the leader. And so the people tithed to fund the national uh, government. We'll call it government. It was kind of both. It was their worship and their government. And so the Levites, go way back in the Old Testament, they weren't given an inheritance. They didn't have land and things. And so instead, all the other people that had those things tithed to support the work of the Levites and the priests. And so that was their first tithe. They went to caring for the guys that sort of made worship happen, the, the, the in-betweens. The second tithe was one that funded feasts and festivals and temple events, and then the third tithe went every third year to give to the poor. And again, that's not to mention the many free will offerings that they would do on top of that. Now, here's why I say that. Tithe literally means tenth. That's what that means. It just means tenth. One-tenth, ten percent, right? And so they gave the tithe uh, several times, um, and in one every third year. But here's why I say that. When you add up all of the tithes, you don't get ten percent you get roughly 23% a year of what Old Testament God-fearers had that was given away. Interesting, right? When time came that the theocracy was over and Rome moved in, eventually Rome would move in and the Jews were to pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews had a hard time understanding the idea of taxes because it wasn't going to the theocracy. It was going to Rome. It was going to Caesar. That's why, by the way, the guys approached Jesus and said, what do you think we should do with our taxes? And he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Because this is an issue that they were really unsure how to approach, and they said, what do you say about it? He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's why Paul later on would say, be subject to the governing authorities, right? Because there was necessary instruction that needed to be given. But listen to this. Post-Pentecost, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers in Acts chapter 2. 
This is after the life of Jesus. He has ascended and, and gone into glory. But after Pentecost, everything after that, we don't read anything about tithing anymore. Instead, we read about generous giving, generous sacrificial giving. You never see it again after Pentecost. Now, there's some disagreement on whether or not believers are still called to tithe, but not in the direction you might think. You may think, well, good, I don't have to tithe. No, 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 no. The disagreement is on the other side of the fence of saying, is 10% enough, or is that really what is called generous giving? When Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law, he called us to greater, not lesser. That's why he said, remember, don't just not commit adultery. Don't even lust in your heart. Supersede, right? Don't just not murder. Don't even hate in your heart. Jesus was approached by the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, and he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Then he says, these you ought to have done, listen, without neglecting the others. You should have kept on doing the tithe, but there's so much more that you need to be offering up to God. Now again, he's talking about some character things here, but certainly we can make an inference of something that says, we need to be giving greater, not lesser, but we don't really have to infer. We can look at the early church as well. In Acts chapter 2, verse 45, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, listen to this last part, as any had need. What's the percentage? There's no percentage. When they saw a need, they filled the need. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul writes, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so he's gonna give them the same instruction that he gave them, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something, something. He doesn't, no person just put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Doesn't give a percentage or an amount. He just says, do it generously. You put something aside for this purpose. But the best example is in 2 Corinthians 8, which is one chapter before where I had you turn to. In 2 Corinthians 8, which is sort of the, the legs that 2 Corinthians 9 stands on, it says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, things were tight, is what he's saying. In a severe test of affliction, they had a hard time with their money, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know what that means is, Paul said, guys, you don't have to give. Things are tight right now. You really don't have to. And you know what they said? No, we want to. We got to. Please take it. Take our offering. We want to be part of this mission. Verse 5 then says, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, to the church, and then by the will of God to us, the missionaries. So they were just generous they had no limit. They just wanted to give. We see no mentions of a tenth, a tithe, but plenty of mentions of generously, abundantly, sacrificially, and cheerfully giving. I'll revisit what I said at the beginning. The giving is a worship matter. Guys, what's in your heart when we pass the plates that matters? More than what's in your pocket. What's in your heart matters. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says that real good summary. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, that's a heart matter, not under compulsion, that's a heart matter, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
What he's saying is, don't give reluctantly. Don't give hesitantly. Don't be like, this one hurts. Mm. Don't give hesitantly, he's saying. He says, not under compulsion, not out of force. It's not a tax. We're not passing the plate of taxing. It's not a Sunday morning stick up. I heard the pastor say that one time, and I said, I gotta throw that in there. It's not a Sunday morning stick up. I had one pastor tell me, we don't take up the offering, we receive the offering. And ever since then, I've adopted that language. We don't take up an offering. We say, whatever God has placed in your heart to give, please give. We receive that. Not reluctancy, not compulsion or force, but cheerful overflow of a thankful and blessed heart. Tim Keller said, your money flows effortlessly to that which is your God. Your money flows effortlessly to that which is your God. Where's your money going? Where's your money going? If something has kept you from being able to afford to be generous, then guess what? You can't afford it. That thing is the optional thing. Giving is not. If you cannot afford to be generous because of this thing, whether it be a coffee every day, or a certain TV bill, a phone bill, a house payment, car, fast food, whatever it may be, something else needs to go so that you can live generously. Non-negotiable here. Budget for generosity, but don't just budget for it. Pray for generosity. You know, we pray for patience. Give me more patience. Give me more kindness. Give me more discipline. Give me more self-control, but do you pray for more generosity? Do you ask God for a giving spirit? Are you giving in the same way today as you were five years ago? Has God increased your generosity? I'm not even asking for the sake of our budget. Guys, it's so strange. The church finances were the last thing on my mind when I was preparing this message. I care so much more about your soul than our dollars. I care so much more about adopting the Spirit of God in our hearts than worrying about the bottom line. We could meet without microphones, without this room. We could meet outside in the parking lot and do just fine. God will take care of his church. I'm concerned with his church. Because guys, God does not call us to a character standard that he has not himself perfectly exemplified. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? Is that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die that we may take him in. That Jesus impoverished himself to make you rich. Do you hear that? Jesus became nothing, Philippians chapter 2, to give you life and wealth of, of knowledge of everything, of everything that you can afford to offer of himself. He wanted to give it to you. He impoverished himself, became nothing, took the form of a slave, a servant, bearing the weight of sin on the cross of Christ so that he could empty you of your bondagement and take it upon himself that you may be emptied of sin and filled with the righteousness of God. Is there any way we could be more rich than that? It's the good news of the gospel. And God does not call you to anything that he does not first himself display loudly. You may be thinking, well, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Tell me, what's the right percentage? What's the right this and that? And I just can't. Paul didn't do that. I'm not gonna do that. He says right here, right, in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's what you should do. What should you do? Talk to God about it. I believe that if the Spirit of God is residing in your heart, then he will guide you 
on what it looks like to be a cheerful, worshipful, sacrificial, generous giver. Everyone's finances are different. For some, beginning at a tithe may be too lofty of a goal. Start how you can. As long as it's generous, sacrificial, and cheerful, I think that that will honor the Lord. But for others of you, you may, you may be at peace with only, you may not be at peace with only giving a tithe or a tenth because God has blessed your means to be generous. It may mean more than you. Or for you, maybe you've been in the same place for a long time and it's time to step out on faith and challenge your giving. You may say, well, I don't know about that. That puts us in a place that I can't really predict. That's the point. It's called sacrificial. It's called faith. Can you go out on faith and trust that God is who he says he is and does what he says he does and wants you to lean on him for all things and trust him? And I believe that that starts in the local church. So, well, what does that mean for me? Look, God may place on your heart to give to a missionary family. He may place on your heart to give to a children's home. He may place on your heart to have some monthly thing to a pregnancy care center, crisis pregnancy center. There are many ways that you can give generously. You may have a family in your neighborhood that just think, you know what, they've, they're on my heart and I need to give to them. That may mean cooking a meal for somebody. It may just mean doing some sort of a benevolence act. But I'll tell you where it starts. It starts in your local church. I know that God wants you to give here. I know God wants you to be a cheerful and generous giver to the local church and then add the free will offerings of whatever you may choose, whatever God may place on your life. By way of application, just to be a little more specific, for those of you that are married in this room, maybe you never had a conversation like this. I encourage you to sit down with your spouse sometime today and ask yourselves, are we giving generously as God would have us do? Are we giving at all? And not just talk to each other about it. I would say even as much important, talk to God about it. Talk to God together about it. I believe that he will lead you. Husbands, heads of household, fathers, this is a great way to lead in your home. Man, a great way to disciple your children and instill in them a generous spirit is to talk about it. Talk about why it is important that we give to the church. Let them put it in the plate. Why am I doing this? Let me tell you why we're doing this. This is why God has instructed it to us. Teach them with it. Teach your children the discipline of giving. It's a faith exercise. It's a generosity exercise. It's a self-control exercise. There's a lot of teaching points that we could say about that. Maybe you're a student, and maybe you're just flat broke. <laughs> it's like, man, I can't wait to give one day. Maybe somebody should give to me. Listen, I think that even now, with little, it's important to create habits, even now, with little. To create giving habits, even now, Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Begin the discipline now. Prioritize it now because later on, it's gonna be hard. Begin now. And don't make it an optional thing now. Before giving is about financial decisions. It is about worshipful decisions. And I will just echo that the currency of your eternal residence, a heavenly kingdom, is not the U.S. dollar. It is Godward devotion and dependence. And so today, build the account that is imperishable with the account that will perish. Church, there is simply not enough money on earth to build lasting treasures here. But God has given you more than enough to build lasting treasures in glory. 
And you may just be thinking, I mean, goodness, this guy has gone on and on about this for a while. Is it really that big of a deal? Is this really that important? As I said a moment ago, this is not near as important to me as this. And it is a big deal. Again, I will suggest to you that there are not many godly characteristics that you can put on that would align your heart with God's more than a giving spirit. That the very essence of the gospel of Christ Jesus hinges on God's love being manifested in the form of cheerful and generous giving. That's why we read and memorize that God so loved the world that he gave. Let us be givers because we were reflecting the gifting, giving spirit of our Father in heaven. And lastly, I will say this. For you, you may be in here today and have been trying to earn your way. We talk about the kingdom of God, you may be thinking, I'm just not quite good enough, but I'm getting close, or maybe it's just hard to strive. Please hear this. Listen very closely. Salvation is a gift from the giver. If there's one thing that you can take away, perhaps it's this. If that's you, there is nothing that you could give that could earn the favor of our Lord. Save your life. God does not value the money. He does not value the stuff. He values what those are fruit and manifestations of, and that is a giving heart. Today, he would have you more than pour money into a bucket. He would have you confess with your mouth that he is the Lord. Give your life to him and proclaim Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Today as we respond, I hope that something here has taken root and that God can produce and grow within you a spirit of giving, not for the sake of giving, but for the sake of godliness, for the sake of worship.